Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome to the New to Books Network. The podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 117 of the podcast. Today I'll be talking with Jan Recker, Professor for Information Systems and Digital Innovation at the University of Hamburg, Germany. His book, Scientific Research in Information Systems, A Beginner's Guide, was published by Springer in 2021. This is the book's second edition. Passion for your research focus is everything, but it's not all there is. You might be a graduate student, and what has got you this far has been your passion for the subject matter. That's good, and in many ways, just as it should be. But now comes research. Research is a many-colored, many-faceted thing, and though every color and every angle of every color must be touched by a researcher's passion for the thing to come off, the passion isn't all there is. And this lesson in the life of the researcher often gets learned late, sometimes too late, because yet another promising, hard-working, well-intentioned graduate student breaks off their degree program and chooses another path in life. In fact, this appears to happen very often. I don't have the statistics to hand, and anyway, former guests on the show tell me that no comprehensive set exists, but still... A trend clearly emerges when, in very many doctoral programs, above half the candidates leave without taking a degree. The problem's been described as follows. When one person drinks the water and gets sick, it's this person who's got a health problem. When a town drinks the water and gets sick, it's the water that's causing a health problem. The situation would appear to be analogous in graduate and doctoral study programs. Too many people are trying, but not succeeding, for it to be a fluke anymore. So, the times come that someone tell these intellectual and committed people, your passion is the spark, and it is the fire, but you need fuel to burn. Or, less metaphorically, a researcher clearly must be driven by deep interest in the research focus. But the researcher will only ever arrive at reliable results, at advancements in knowledge, 
at a job, in career even, when that researcher learns about scientific inquiry, about research methods, about communication and peer review and publishing. Now, there are other things I might add to this list, such as learn about education and teaching, or learn about collaboration and leadership, but the three named above, science, method, publishing, are already quite a lot. In any way, these are the primary means of every individual researcher's work on knowledge problems. Note I say means, because again, the energy driving the work remains the passion. But without the means, the research won't come off. Not anyway in the sense of a scientist truly helping a research community to ask the right questions and to seek more accurate and more adequate answers. Basically, if a researcher is untaught in the means of research, his or her excellent abilities, his or her storehouse of knowledge will serve no one, not even themselves. But that's the sad truth, and it's my opinion that that's also why so many people are leaving their graduate and doctoral programs. They are taught about their subject matters, but they are taught little, often shockingly little, about how to research their subject matters. For this reason, out there in every discipline and in every sub-discipline, we need more guides and more guidance. The guidance comes from people, from professors, mentors, more experienced researchers on a project, from people who can talk to early career researchers and tell them about their own first publication, about their current strategies for publishing. The guides, on the other hand, are materials and reference, which researchers can turn to as needed and as wanted. I'm thinking explainers, podcasts, journalism, like, for example, the excellent Nature Careers, and, of course, books, just like the one for today's interview. Scientific Research and Information Systems, a Beginner's Guide, is precisely the sort of guide every established and every emerging subfield should have for themselves. With guides of this caliber, I am sure far fewer students would feel overwhelmed by the realities of researching, because we have seen it's one thing to love the knowledge, and another thing altogether actually to contribute to the knowledge. Basically, today's book by Professor Jan Recker gives to the novice researcher the means to apply their passion to the work of advancing knowledge. So, let's begin today's episode, Jan Recker and Scientific Research. Hi Jan, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Hi Daniel, thanks for having me, it's a great opportunity. That's great. Um, I wanted to just sort of carry right on there from uh, the intro about this contrast between what early career researchers, people doing their masters, even down into uh, the BA level are learning about their subject matter, right? I mean, if you think of biology or chemistry or information science or any other fields, you think of the content versus what they are learning less of, or in some cases very little of, how to research that subject matter, which turns out to be quite significant in their skill set as they move on in their career as researchers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, this is the, the, the great paradox and, um, you know, and also one of the biggest issues that I see to this day. I've certainly experienced it in my, in my own time. You know, if you, if you think about it, I've done a Bachelor of Science and a Master of Science and then I moved on to do a, a PhD, right? So a, a doctoral research degree. And the reality is that by the time I started the PhD and probably some years into that experience, I had no idea what that actually meant. 
And this is with two science degrees to my name. So you would, you would wager that at that time, people know what it means to do research on the subject, not just to know something about the subject. And uh, that was baffling to me. And that was a big learning experience for me as when I was a student. And uh, to, be, to be very honest with you, I mean, I know I've been a professor for, for almost two decades or in this business for almost two decades. I think this is still the big problem to this day. So I don't, I don't know whether it has improved a lot, to be honest. Yes, this this is a, a, a perennial topic on this show. I've spoken with very, very many people on the idea of what are PhDs being taught and what should they be taught. Um, of course, you know, in the sciences, everybody's time is limited. We're dealing with complex subject matter and very difficult long-term studies at times. Um, but yes, there is a trade-off to be made there. Uh, maybe, maybe this is something that you could sketch out for us uh, briefly in the air if you have, I, I know you have opinions on it, um, and your book uh, addresses it as well as to any kind of a ranking beyond the content of the field of the things that a researcher entering as an early career researcher really has to have under their belt. Well, I think, I mean, this is this may come across as... Uh... You know, a little bit too generic, but I think one of the the key things is passion and intellectual curiosity, the desire to to know and to learn something and to figure out something that we may not know yet. Right. So this sounds a little bit too generic, of course, but I think it's really important. And I'll tell you why this is important. If you think about a um, a, a typical doctoral degree program, so where where early career researchers really learn the tools of the trade and learn the processes and learn the methods and all that sort of stuff. And of course, they're meant to, um, you know, undertake a study of their own. And such a program, depending on the country that you're in, takes anywhere between three to, you know, four, five, six, seven years. That's a very long time to be spending on one topic. And uh, so if you're not burning for this, and if you don't have a passion for whatever topic you're choosing to research, I think that's just incredibly difficult to sustain if, you, if you're not burning for that topic, right? But passion alone isn't, isn't enough, of course, because one of the biggest challenges is, of course, that it's such a long period of time that, that you know, we are very ill-equipped to, to project into the future for such a long time. So what I'm saying is you don't actually know in the beginning, even though you might be passionate now, whether or not you'll be passionate about this topic in three to four years' time. And what I've seen from early career researchers is really if it – boils down to it, this is really one of the biggest reasons for let's you know failure. I mean, what I mean with this for people not not wanting or not being able to complete their studies, you know, why is that? Because they, they lost that passion. They're not interested. They're not motivated anymore. They don't want to know anymore. I think that happens much more often than um, the topic is, you know, irrelevant or it has been solved. That rarely ever happens. What happens much more often is that people lost the interest and the passion for that topic. So I do think passion is important. I think that is, uh, I wouldn't say that's all too general or, you know, too hard to get our our hands on. I, I agree very much. I mean, um, as my listeners will know, I, I help uh, scientists write and I'm in a computer science department at the moment. And, and it just occurred to me this or last week, walking down the halls where they have hung out different posters on uh, from conferences that they've been to and so on. And I know the sorts of papers that they're writing. It just sort of dawned on me looking at those posters. I was like, wow, they are revolving around these very narrowly similar topics always. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just, I, it just fascinated me. I thought, wow, the dedication and, and, and the enthusiasm that's involved in that. I think it's very important. I have a, a similar experience that I made literally yesterday. So uh, 
I'm my my own field is at the intersection of uh, technology and business. Yeah, so computer science, yes, but also management and business. Um, so yesterday at my own university, it so happened that there was a very big computer science and technology conference, literally in the same in the next building. Um, and I just took a glance, and there were it's a very big conference. There were about three thousand eight hundred people, all of which were discussing artificial intelligence, basically, which is a hot topic, of course, at the moment. And the one thing I saw across this gigantic hall, this entire um, convention center, you know what? It was passion. These people were passionate about uh, artificial intelligence, either because uh, they cherished the opportunities or they were really deeply worried about the con- uh, you know about concerns they might have. It, whatever it was, the specific topic, but I can tell you one thing, this room was brimming with, with passion. Um, and most of these people were early career researchers, right? Students, uh, you know, some professors, uh, postdocs, the whole lot. But everyone was passionate about artificial intelligence for a variety of reasons. What your book does is it it begins right there, just as we've begun our conversation with passion and enthusiasm. But what it does is it also leads then into, OK, let's translate that. Let's translate intelligence, that curiosity, that passion into research methodologies, into proper statements of a research question, into, of course, the entire field of how to theorize and the very important field of how to publish. Um, All of these very, you know, practical matters are taken apart in such a way that, you know, the reader really understands how to do that translation act as, as, as I'm uh, um, sort of portraying it as, I, th- I think it's obvious you saw that there was a felt need there. You say it's still the case that so many students are entering PhD programs without a sense as to how to research. Um, maybe they'll give us a bit of your sort of personal background to the book as to, you know, when was the moment that you said this needs to be written and, and I'm going to write it? Yeah, I, I guess that most books are written because of some personal experience of the authors, right? So in, in my situation, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, I certainly had that experience as I was you know, entering the PhD and completing the PhD and becoming a, an academic. And you have a, a lot of uh, um, you know, reflective moments and, and, and learning opportunities where you realize, geez, you had no idea. <laughs> yeah, so, so by the time that I made that commitment, said I'm going to apply for a stipend, I'm going to go to this other country, to this university, I'm going to do my doctorate there. Later, you realize that you didn't even know what that decision actually meant. That's, this is at least how I felt. And now at some stage, I then got into the situation that it was my job to take on um, the, the incoming doctoral students and provide them with, you know, the types of courses that universities typically offer, right? Like graduate courses and introduction to science classes and all these sorts of things and, and very often research methods courses that universities tend to offer these days to uh, doctoral students. And I felt um, at that time still that people were really still struggling with this transition into this particular profession. And I felt that we were jumping too quickly into the inner workings of some specific scientific method. And we weren't looking at, um, you know, um, some of the aspects that came to it, understanding what what science is about, what research is about um, on a broader level. So I I felt there was like an entry point was missing. Yeah, we had very big textbooks on philosophy of science, on, you know, experiments or other types of methods. And they were really big books, you know, easily six, seven, eight hundred pages long. But they deep dive very, very quickly into one specific area. And I was always looking at the time for an entry level uh, textbook. 
So I felt, well, there, there might be a need here because everyone around me seemed to have that need. Um, now, the interesting thing that happened with this book, which, which was you know, supposed to be the bridge when you're starting and you have no idea and next to you is this big book on, let's say, experimental methods or on statistical methods, something that connects you here and now with the part and that task at that particular point in time in your process where you actually need that statistics textbook, something that bridges these two points of your own development. Um, So that's why I wrote this book. Now, uh, one story about this book is that I intended it to be a, and it says so on the on the cover, it, it's intended for uh, doctoral level students, even for postdocs or early career assistant professors. So someone that is in the training or, you know, has completed the training, but still emerged in their own career. Uh, what actually happened since this book came out, It's it's been taken up especially by um, students, by, by masters and, and bachelor students. So people like the book before they actually make the decision whether or not to go into academia, much more so than those people that are actually in the profession already that have made this decision. I didn't quite attend it this way, but in looking back, I think that makes a lot of sense because maybe this book gives them a little bit more of an insight into what they can expect once they make this decision. So in a way, maybe it helps them make the decision one way or the other. Yes. I mean, there is a lot of advice. Um, The voice that you write in is, you know, of a, an advisor, you really get the sense that this person here who, who's speaking to you, I mean, you speak very much as you speak here. Yeah, no, and it comes off that way, which is which is why I can also understand why, you know, even people in their masters would would feel very much that this book was directed at them, even though it wasn't your original um, plan. What, what I find interesting is uh, just to stick a little bit more on this education issue is you bring in transparency um, to lots of processes that go on in research that I don't think people at their master's levels for sure, and, and, and some even later, are realizing entirely, you know, the sorts of research methodologies, the sorts of commitment that's needed, the entire publishing process and how that works out. Um, and I think that's partially because, you know, they're just not being told it. There's not yeah. open enough speaking about, you know, how the research day plays out. Um, kind of dull at times, right? <laughs> yeah, I agree. And, and this is also why I get uh, mixed reactions to this book, right? So some people say like, oh, finally, something that tells me a little bit what I can expect. And of course, the other voice that I get to hear is, well, there's nothing new here, right? This is a dumbed down version of this more detailed, um, you know, uh, a textbook on a particular method or on writing or whatever else. And I think this is exactly the place that this book should have. If you're an expert scholar, I would, I dare say there's very little in this book that you would find interesting. If you're looking for some specific aspect of some specific technique or some specific challenge, then again, th- this book isn't for you. But if you're like me at that point where... Uh, you want to do this, you're interested, you're curious, maybe even passionate, um, and you want to get started, and you don't know how to start. So, for example, in in my field, and I think this is the same in in many other fields, you are actually looking within the boundaries of your own field for advice. So I'm in this field called information systems. And as I said, it's nestled somewhere between uh, business and computer science, but it's neither here nor there, and certainly not as big as, let's say, bio- biology or chemistry, some of the established sciences, right? Um, what I find people are doing is they're not looking for a science textbook. They're not even looking for a computer science textbook. They're looking for an information systems textbook. Yeah, and this just didn't exist. 
Yeah. Uh, so you could say, look, there's this really good book on the social sciences by some guy. Read that one. But that's not actually where people look. People look within your field, within the things, the few things that they know already, maybe the people, maybe the papers they've read already. And they want to have something that speaks to them quite directly, not on a tangent, not something where they have to uh, translate or map advice from some other field to their own field, right? So I think they wanted to know like, okay, I'm in this field, let someone from this field tell me what this is about. Um, so I think that too uh, was a little bit of a gap that, that, that you know, could be filled and, and maybe this book filled it in some, in some way at least. I, I think it very much uh, does. And, and that's um, something also that I refer to there in the introduction, very many emerging um, fields into disciplinary work, such as information science, um, the information sciences, you know, could, could really use a book like this, because I agree. I think, you know, um, people who are working through their masters or considering a PhD, they, they would like to know these things, but they would like to know them also a bit directed at their interest. Yes. But, but, I, I think so too. Yeah, absolutely. But, but what happens in your book is you actually end up offering advice that is also widely applicable. I, I think very many people outside of information sciences could benefit tremendously from your talk about theory, um, planning research, research questions, research design, methodology and methods are given uh, ample space here and and you really cover the gamut that's partly because i think information sciences does cover the gamut in different methods <laughs> and question asking um so i would i would argue that very many other people even outside of information sciences are going to be able to benefit from your discussions I'd like to think so as well. And I think, again, I mean, if you look at the, the cover of the book, I, I, I make this point. I do think it is, a, is is more broadly applicable into different outlets, right? So reaching into the social science where people do empirical work. Um, but that is, I guess, is the consequence of this particular field. Um, it's both a technical science and a social science. So you can actually reach out. It is a truly interdisciplinary field. And that means you actually cover quite a lot of areas that might be of interest to other people as well. Um, but I think, the point whether or not it actually achieves that, that's a question of marketing, I suppose, and you know, making sure that this book is actually promoted within the, these different communities. The reality within um, <laughs> academic communities is the, the phenomena or even the methods, you know, the way that we go about our research or even the things that we are researching, they're pretty interdisciplinary, right? So in my experience, uh, many different social sciences, for example, we all use the same methods. It doesn't matter in what field we're in. But the reality is also that the uh, the academia itself is quite siloed. It is. If you're a marketing person, you're a marketing person. If you're a sociologist, you're a sociologist. And if you're a computer scientist, you're a computer scientist. So the reality is that the people, so the actual scientists, the way they do training, the books that they write, the papers that they write and read, they're always confined within the bounds of their own little field. Um, even if the topics and even the approaches and the processes, they span these fields, right? So there, there's this saying saying that, you know, the uh, the phenomena that we're interested in do not live in the silos that we invented to study them. And I think that's very true. And the processes and the way to go about science, that's also the same. But the reality is also that if you want to speak to other communities, do you have to go there? Because otherwise they wouldn't even know that you exist and they wouldn't listen to you. <laughs> very, very much agree. And, and, and that will segue nicely into uh, the second sort of set of topics I would like to explore through your book. And, and that's communication. The problems out there in the real world, your, your, your description of silos in academia, 
totally spot on, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the problems out there in the real world, though, are obviously more and more demanding that interdisciplinary work be done because they're becoming so complex that the single team of experts in their own particular area are just not actually you know, going to be able to face a challenge like that. And, and that's why it's important to know that, you know, in your abstract or in your intro to start getting into some of maybe some the, the, the topics that you explore in, in your book, you need to realize that you might be addressing readers who are not familiar with your methodology or familiar even with your sub-discipline and your results may still be useful to them. You're right. I mean, uh, this, this, targets another problem that I think that we have in academic training. Um, if you look at the job of a scholar, it's not only to create knowledge through you know, applying the methods correctly in, in, in these sorts of things, but you have to be a really good communicator. Yeah. Um, so what good is knowledge if no one knows about it? It's <laughs> the, the simple analogy. Um, that means uh, there's a saying that every, every scientist has to be a really good writer. Because through writing papers and books, this is how we communicate, right? This is the format that historically we've used to, to communicate with each other, uh, to document our knowledge and our findings and so forth, right? The problem that I see, and that's, you know, I only address this partially in the book because there's not a lot of room for this. The problem that I see is that when we train emerging scholars, we train a lot of methods. So we're basically creating people that are really good at doing research. But how many universities do you know that actually have communication courses for, for, for academics, that have a publishing or writing courses for their PhD students? I've started doing this in my own university, that we have a, a, a course for PhD students that's not about their methods, it's not about their theories, it's about writing their articles. Um, but, you know, if you look at the, uh, the, the advice that's out there, you'll find probably 95% of method textbooks, but how many books on communication and writing are there for academics. So this is an aspect that is really crucial um, to your career, in fact, um, and to be an effective scholar, but it's one that we actually don't teach. And it's so integral to the research uh, process. I mean, we could even start all the way back where you do very early on in the book. You, you, you situate it just where it belongs in the area of, um, of methodology the role that the literature plays in the research process. So I'm not even, we haven't even gotten to the point of writing yet, but um, how do you read? And I think this end of, of communication is, which is a sort of interpretation, if you like, is often overlooked. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, one of the key ideas about science is this incremental um, yeah, contribution to the body of knowledge. And it usually when I, you know, in the book, I try this a little bit. And when I talk to students, it's like, okay, what, what does that actually mean? Well, it means you first need to know what do we know already? What is it that we know? And what is it that we don't know? And then you have to figure out how you can do a study that adds a little bit to, to what we know. What we know is usually written down. These are the books of papers and, and uh, you know, the, the stacks of papers and books that we have about a particular topic. So every scientist has to read and we read a lot. And uh, again, we don't actually teach people how to read very well. Um, and I would say it this way, the very successful academics, they're really good readers. <laughs> so they have a way of um, not necessarily going, you know, front cover to back cover on every single book and reading every line, but they have, they have a way of very efficiently and, and, and correctly, of course, identifying the key points and the key 
you know, the key points that any one paper or any one book makes. And that's a great skill to have because otherwise there's a lot of stuff to read. I mean, you can be busy all the time reading and that's not going to get you anywhere, but you kind of also know not not to read. So you have to find of reading very effectively and very efficiently. Um, and the way that I always say this, uh, I don't know whether you would agree with this. I always say that, look, if you're writing, if you're reading an academic article or an academic book, that's completely different from you reading the latest Grant Grisham novel. These are not the same reading process. No, I, I, I entirely agree. Um, <laughs> they, 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 they differ drastically. And yet, I've said this often on this show, that when people talk about good writing or, or you know, what it is that uh, you should be able to do with text when you're a scientist, um, and they meet someone like me who's outside of the field of sciences, my background is the humanities, they immediately start talking about not the literature, but literature, right? You know, I'll get asked things like, yeah, John Grisham novel or, you know, latest novelists and so on. And and, and you see there already this this misconception that's involved in the reading. The, the scientist that you just described who, who knows how to extract the information, where to look, and also how to interpret it and to realize its significance. I mean, these are some of the central reading techniques that are needed by a scientist. They don't really translate over into novel reading very well, do they? No, absolutely not, right? Uh, uh, and I agree. And I, I don't really have a... I don't know whether I could formulate good advice on how to actually do that. <laughs> I, I, the only point I could do is... I. I stressing is how important that actually is and that over time you need to become good at this um so the the reality is of course same reading and writing well i think most scholars we we learn that over time by you know doing it and failing with it for thousands of times yeah um so very few of us are gifted readers and very few of us are very gifted writers those that are that I, I do think they have an advantage in science so they're not the better scientists but they understand the literature better um, or they can communicate better. And these are really key um, key techniques, right? And, and uh, I, I'm just hoping or was hoping with this book a little bit as well is that can't we do more to help people develop these essential skills a little bit easier, a little bit earlier, a little bit better than what I had to do, which is try, fail, do it again, fail, do it again, do it again. You know, and over time you eventually learn. <laughs> So surely there must be a better technique to, to teaching than, you know, doing and failing. I very much believe there is and, and try to practice it also in my own work. And I think you provide uh, there and what you have to say about how to read the literature. Very, you know, key um, advice. Uh, this, this comes back to also some recent research in the science of science, where basically the the practice of science is, is, is put under the microscope and people figure out what makes good leadership in a lab, um, what makes an impactful paper and so on. And there's something that's talked about, which is Q factor. And it really just translates as into the ideas that are in your field. Who are the people who just seem to consistently translate them into impactful work? And I, I think what you're saying is one of those factors. It is the ability to read well to recognize which literature matters. I think so. And I do think this is a, as I said, like some of us have that skill uh, for a variety of reasons, but it, regardless of whether you have it or not, it can certainly be learned. Um, so I don't know. I, I got, for example, I come from a family that for, for some, they're not, they're not academics. None of them has ever been an academic, but for some reason we've always, always read a lot. 
And so I'm reading a lot whether or not it's it's uh, for my job or not. So I do appreciate John Grisham, for example. He's <laughs> not my favorite author. Um, but I do read a lot. And, and I, I do think that helps my job, to be honest. Uh, uh, the fact that I like picking up a book and, and reading and, and thinking about what I read. Um, so, you know, this is just a little, little thing that I think it's very difficult um, to become an academic even if you know statistics really well, if you don't like reading. So you got to find some appreciation in, in, in what people write and how they how that allows you to express views of the world and so forth. And the more, you know, simple advice, the, the, the more the read, the better you'll be as a person or as an academic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I would, uh, this is something that I also practice in my work is, is to sort of bring in a proper appreciation of the reading and the writing that it is that you're doing for science. It, it, it is just as valuable as novels, but it functions differently. And pointing out those different functions, I think, is is certainly key. And uh, you you make some very good points later on in the book. If we might move over to the to the third third section where you spend a lot of time talking about publishing, um, you make lots of good points there. Uh, wonderful statements as well. You can waste good research by not writing it well. Um, this captures the idea that you've just been talking about there. Of you know, it's the researcher who is fantastic at statistics doesn't necessarily turn out to be the most successful researcher. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, not only about your own own success, but it's really this point about it doesn't help the world if you are really good at constructing knowledge, but you're the only person knowing it. Yeah, we have to we have to be able to communicate it to the world, to the outside. Now that could include other academics. That's difficult already, but if you want, you can even take it a step further. It's also of limited impact if you only contain it to academics and you know that you know academics communicate in a very particular way not a very accessible way so you know the way that our papers are written you know you could call it boring <laughs> um, and of course there's also a translational process into society or you know if you're like me in, in a business um, uh, context to firms to decision makers um, the people that are implicated by what you found, um, you can't just send them your paper. <laughs> you know, they wouldn't be able to understand it. And this is not because we know more than them. It's just not a language that they that they speak. So I think there's also sometimes the obligation to to translate. That can be a very difficult thing as well. And again, this is not something that we normally teach to our, uh, you know, to the early career academics. We hardly teach them how to communicate well with other academics. We basically never teach them to speak to anyone else. And th that's, it's just a, a terrible thing because I think it's solely felt by very many scientists, most every scientist I've spoken with, and I, I've, I've moved through a fair amount of science, uh, science departments where they just feel that, you know, text isn't quite working for their research. And it, it could with with uh, not all too much more help. I mean, some of the things that you point up in the book um, and things that I've also experienced myself is, you know, when writing it out, you actually notice what it is that you're thinking. And it's very easy to be sort of talking in the air and, you know, covering up little gaps or pits in your logic, which will show up if it if it's put on paper or on screen. Yes, absolutely. I am a big believer in this. This, the, you know, the saying goes, um, "Writing means thinking." You don't know what you're saying until I can read what I said. Yeah, uh, I, I very much believe in this, and this is a technique that I'm again using in my own work. So I try to write down my idea, my approach, my find whatever it is that I'm doing. I try to write it down. First of all, we have to write it down eventually. 
But secondly, an idea is very, very fidgety, yeah, uh, while it's in your head. Um, and, and sometimes you very quickly realize that the worth of an idea or the value of an idea if you try to express it. Now, this process is actually very difficult. It might sound crystal clear in your head what you're thinking, but if you try to put it into words, you realize how, how difficult it might become. And in certain sciences, of course, you're not even trying to put it into words. You're trying to put it into mathematical equations. Yeah, And then you realize that this idea doesn't actually work. So in, in whatever way, I do think writing is thinking. And the better and the earlier we get to this writing stage, um, the better it is. We we just had this experience with my, I have a team of young PhD students at the moment, and I basically pushed them and encouraged them very strongly to start writing the first paper. Not because I think they need to publish this paper. I want them to write down the idea because this will help us help them refine and develop their idea further. And I think most of them have this realization that this writing exercise really helped them actually move the, move the, the research along. Yes, most certainly. And you also say another really interesting thing in, in the uh, publishing section. You talk about how the paper's audience is determined by the narrative that's given in the paper or the logic, if you like. Some people aren't so keen on the idea of story or narrative, but I understand entirely what you mean. This, 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 um, the thinking of it is laid out in such a sense that, you know, that paper audience will then read it almost as if they were thinking it. So it meshes entirely with what they're understanding. Yeah, I, I think so, right? I mean, um, I think the idea is that you're always you're always writing for someone, yeah, a so-called conversion. So you're having a conversation, but not in person, um, not, you know, by speaking, but by writing and the other person by reading. And then maybe you know, writing something in response to it. Uh, you know, it's a very asynchronous uh, process, of course, uh, but this is the, the way to think about it, right? You're writing to someone as if you're speaking and you're having a conversation with someone. And that means, you knew, first of all, you need to know who you're actually talking to. That is a, actually a fairly difficult question to um, to ask. And then, of course, you, you have to sort of imagine what this person how the person thinks about a particular topic and what you would say to that person and what this person would say in response and so forth. So it's a difficult technique, I think, um, but this is effectively what we're doing. Academics converse with each other through writing, through the papers that they write, and they inspire other people to write and do some research in response, and then eventually we'll get a response in writing through another paper. And this is how this conversation, you know, iterates and this is how we build up knowledge through these conversations that we're having in through written papers and texts and again as you do throughout the book you explore this idea practically by talking for example about venue selection and it's important i find to make clear to researchers that in deciding on the venue or just selecting venues going through a few possible ones you're actually picking your set of readers in a sense that journal or if you're in some fields that conference you know there are certain conversations and certain words that are used there and certain concepts that are the hottest ones and if you go to you know with with one concept that you might have to a place where it's cold or it's just not understood then you know you could write all you want they're not going to get you Exactly. Yeah. So I think you express this really well. So a, a very loose metaphor that I use there um, is that I liken these academic venues to newspapers. Yeah. Newspapers, they all talk about the world or the state of the world and affairs of the world, but they speak to very different audiences. And we all know this. We all know that the sun is different from the mirror and the mirror is different from the guardians and the times. So we all know this. 
Um, and, and I think academic venues or outlets, whether it be conference proceedings or actual journals or books, they're, they're, they're much the same way. We, we talk about the state and affairs of the world, but we're a particular community that has their own language, their own interests, and sometimes even their own biases and, and preferences, just like the readership of, you know, the Mirror, the Sun, the Times and the Guardian and so forth. Two other areas in the writing that I find you give, you know, due recognition of is, is first off the difficulty, especially as we began with early career researchers, to sort of get the sense of how do I build my paper? What goes in it? How um, do I argue this or that point and where? Um, you talk about a sort of, I would call it template approach to writing, taking a handful of good papers um, that really kind of document similar type research and helping them build the paper that you want to build. So not just using the research as content, but using the research as communication basis. Exactly. And I that's another one of these paradoxes in academia. Um, science is new ideas in old formats. So what that means is that you want to write about your new idea and your new finding, but you want to make it in a way, in a format, in a form of communication that, that people are accustomed to. And there's a very simple reason for that. Um, if you have a new idea expressed in a very new format of communication, you know, a paper that looks very different too, well, then people first have to understand how you're building your argument. Yeah, we have all scientists read science paper, research papers all the time, and we are very accustomed to a particular script, yeah, a particular way that the sections unfold and so forth. We expect the first section to be an introduction. We usually expect the second section to be a background section, you know, and so forth. Um, and we expect the, the discussion section to be at the end of the paper. So every time the script is altered, um, this basically adds cognitive load for us as we're parsing the text. And what we want to get to, we want to, you know, we, we don't want to find out the communication. We want, to, we want to learn about your idea, right, about the new knowledge. And that's difficult enough. And we complicate it even more if we communicate in a way that's alien to the reader, right? So this is the idea that you, you express your new idea, but you allow people to focus on your idea by talking about it in much the same way that everyone is already accustomed to. Why? Very simple, because it's easier for people to understand. What you've just described is a, a proven and highly effective uh, tool that's used in, in, in teaching English for academic purposes in that field. And, and I find it wonderful that you um, are practicing it, um, because it's, it's something that I would always recommend uh, to, well, to researchers. Well, it's also what you mentioned with this template. I mean, one simple trick that you can do is that you literally find that template paper, a paper that expresses an idea in a way that you think is effective and you're just modeling the, not the idea, you're not copying that paper, but you're copying the format of that paper and uh, you know, try to express your new idea, your original idea in, in a way that was proven to be effective before you, right? So this is the idea of templating. And I think that's a simple and effective way of doing that. Yes, very much so. And, and it's one of those ways as a reader to notice to read better, you know, to notice what's happening on the communication level of the paper, not just pulling out numbers and, and let's say, relevant terminology and so on, but seeing that, yeah, there's actually this framework there on which they built all of these things. The, the other point that I wanted to just briefly touch upon, um, because you spend a fair amount of time on theory in the book, you talk about hypotheses and propositions, 
And I find it wonderful that you in various ways uh, imply and even state fairly plainly that this is, again, a test of one's writing ability. Um, this is this is a heavy test on what language can even do in science, because to, to make a logical argument or to really formulate a proper hypothesis, that has to be trained as well. It has to. I mean, it, it's because science is essentially a system of trust. We're trusting each other to do the science correctly. We're trusting each other to do the analysis properly. We're trusting each other when we say, this is a case that I looked at, this is the data that I collected and so forth. So we try to trust each other all the time. But also, more fundamentally, all the theories that scientists come up with, well, we don't know whether they're true. And we know that we can never know. We can only trust them. Yeah, so we, we build up cumulative evidence that support a certain theory, but we, we will never know um, whether or not a particular theory is true. The way that I tell this to my student is that I sometimes say, look, 500 years ago, we knew the earth was flat. We knew that. Everyone trusted this belief because all the evidence pointed to it. You could see it with your own eyes that there was a horizon where the, you know, the ocean dropped off. All the people that we trusted um, all the leaders in knowledge, which at that time, of course, was largely the church and all the big important texts, they all stipulated the earth was flat. So everyone, for all you know, the sense and purposes, knew the earth was flat. Now we know the earth is round and a planet and blue and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, we don't really know. <laughs> I mean, that one we probably do know by now. But there's a lot of things that we think we know, but the reality will be and the future will show is that we are playing wrong about a lot of things. So this, this healthy skepticism in, in, um, in science is important, but it also highlights how important it is to communicate well, because this is the only mechanism we have for building trust. Trust in my theory, trust in my data, trust in my findings. Um, I have to communicate well, because otherwise people will never be able to, to believe me. Well, thank you very much for that, uh, Jan. That is Jan Recker, Professor for Information Systems and Digital Innovation at the University of Hamburg in Germany. His book, Scientific Research and Information Systems, A Beginner's Guide, is out with Springer. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Jan. Goodbye. Thank you, Daniel. This was uh, very enjoyable. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.